Welcome, gentlemen, to another episode of the Catholic Gentleman Podcast. Up next, we will be talking about the source and summit of our faith, the Holy Eucharist. And we will be looking specifically at passages from Scripture that reinforce our faith in the Eucharist uh, and remind us of, the, of its importance in our lives. Thanks for joining us on another episode of The Catholic Gentleman. As many of you know, we are your hosts, John Heinen and Sam Guzman. We're blessed that you're here. We still want to continue forward with this Eucharistic revival and do our part to help the lives of men appreciate Christ in the Eucharist. And so that's why we decided to talk about this topic today on, on Scripture. But before we get there, if this is your first time listening to us, please click that subscribe button wherever you are. If you're listening to us on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts, we'd greatly appreciate it if you wrote us a review. It helps expand the algorithm rhythm and move this. And finally, Sam and I are just a week or so away from launching the Catholic Gentleman Plus, the uh, awaited membership program for men. It has been uh, years in the making, quite quite literally years and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours. And we are super, we're just so blessed and excited to bring this uh, to, to men uh, internationally, you know, nationally. And we just can't wait for that to launch. So we'll be talking more about that next week. But uh, keep us in your prayers and definitely uh, be on the lookout for Catholic Gentleman Plus uh, stuff because it's going to be coming out everywhere. So. All right. Well, diving right in. I know that uh, we're going to be talking about scripture today, and I find this uh, particularly um, exciting because we're Catholics and we get this bad name, you know, that Catholics don't read scripture, Catholics don't understand scripture. And that that kind of image has been really pushed upon us. It's been pushed upon me. Um, and if I'm being honest, that's why Sam's here, because he was a Protestant. He probably had to memorize scripture and then he's able to come over and provide that wealth of knowledge. No, I'm joking. I read scripture, too. Um, but I will say that Catholics need to get better at reading scripture. We need to get better at at um, at uh, breathing from the wealth spring of, of Holy writ and, and learning to allow that to transform us. And so I do think, and hopefully he'll be listening to one of these episodes, but a close friend of mine, Stephen, who was, um, a Baptist when we were growing up, I remember in eighth grade history class, looking back at him and he didn't care what other people were thinking. Anytime he had a break, his, his Bible was out and he was going through it. And I know now he'll tell me things like, yeah, but I, I didn't understand it like Catholics do or things like that. But I tell you, there, there's, there's transform, transformative powers in that. And so I just uh, start out by encouraging men to, to dive into scripture. And that's what we'll be doing today in particular, talking about the teachings of the Eucharist and how that can help us grow in our love and appreciation for the, yeah, the source and summit of, of our faith. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's important to recognize too, that, uh, the, the Bible is Catholic really, truly. Um, you know, and, um, a lot of times, uh, you know, Protestants just assume that, well, if you just open your Bible, if you just search the scriptures, uh, then there's no question you will become a Protestant. But actually, that's not true at all, because um, the more I really read the Bible, uh, apart from those lenses that I had been given, and let's be honest, we all have interpretive lenses. 
there's no such thing as like, you know, completely uh, interpretation free reading of the Bible. We're always interpreting. We're always putting meaning on to the words that are there. But the more that you can try to be truly neutral, like the more you realize, like there's a lot of awfully Catholic sounding things uh, in the Bible. And if you let the scriptures speak for themselves, um, it's very difficult to not come to conclusions that ultimately lead you to the Catholic Church. So, um, you know, if you're a Protestant listening to this and you're taken aback by that statement, I would encourage you to uh, maybe adjust your own lenses a little bit and see where it leads you. Um, and we'll be talking about some of the scriptures today that really support one of the key pillars of Catholic faith and practice, which is the Eucharist. So I guess without further ado, John, do you have a scripture that you'd like to highlight first? I do. And I love how we're going to go through all this, but I want to talk about the scripture verse uh, that was most transformative for me in my experience. And that actually happened in college. So I... I trusted the church. I, I totally believed in the church. Um, for thanks be to God that my parents raised me as such. And so I, I believe that body, that Christ was present, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist, um, all throughout high school. I didn't particularly question it. Um, high school kids rarely do, you know, we're, we're so fitting into the norm and trying to figure out life and everything like that. So I didn't, but when I went into college, then I was asked to give accounting for it. I went to Texas Christian University for my undergrad, and that's a big Reformed Calvinist, uh, and I actually stayed uh, one of my semesters with a um, uh, great man, but uh, a Reformed Calvinist who just attacked me a lot for my faith, and I had to learn. And then when I started learning about this, maybe because of just my you know, simple mindedness or something. I was just like, yes, this makes so much sense. I don't understand, you know? Um, and so the first scripture verse that I want to jump into is John six. And I want to talk about the discourse on Christ being the bread of life and, and how that goes through. And so really just to prepare you guys, I'm going to read some, and then we're going to talk about it. And we're just going to walk through, uh, not, not all of John six. It's, it's a long one. And I encourage you guys to, to start reading, um, the, chapter six of, of the gospel of John. But I just want to start out by talking right here at verse 48, where, uh, the, the individuals were murmuring with some of the things that, that Christ had just stated, uh, it just as a, um, uh, an understanding, a setting, right? So Christ had just, uh, multiplied the loaves and fishes and, uh, they had what, 12 wicker baskets that were, were filled up afterwards. And, and so then Christ is talking to a whole multitude of people and he says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that a man may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. And so we, we take a stop and it's like, wait a minute. So it started out that he was, you know, kind of talking symbolically, right? That I am, you know, I am the bread of life. Okay. And yeah, it's a beautiful uh, statement. I'm the bread of life. But then it really starts getting into it. If anyone eats of this bread, wait a minute, you know, he will live forever. And the bread, which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. And it's like, okay, so he's talking about dying, but we have to eat of it. And we see that in scripture, right? Where all of a sudden, uh, the, it says they disputed this, right? So, uh, the people listening started to dispute this and, and I get it, right. That was a little bit overwhelming. And for any good, um, uh, Jew of the time who was learned, he would have 
kind of this would have rubbed him wrong because you know the idea of eating flesh or or drinking blood was uh was forbade in 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 the Leviticus law and so uh so what is he talking about and and I'll pause right there before we go further as Christ we assume is going to clarify himself but then he just drives it home even further and see if you had any thoughts on that Sam Yeah absolutely um it's a it's an amazing passage that really harkens back to what I would say is really like the 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 exodus from Egypt and the the wandering in the desert where the Jews um in in the Sinai desert were completely dependent on God from day to day. There was no water source readily available, there was no food source readily available. I mean they were really in the desert where there was absolutely nothing. And likewise, when you read this passage of John 6, they're in kind of a, while it's not a desert, it's kind of a waste place. There's no villages nearby. They're, they're kind of out in the middle of nowhere. All these people just kind of gathered and had no plan. They didn't, they didn't pack a lunch. They didn't bring a picnic, you know, basket. They just came out to hear Jesus speak, but had no plan for dinner. And so they were completely dependent. And so there was this dilemma where it's like we either send them home so they can not famish they won't pass out they won't uh you know be starving to death um or you know maybe we one of us could go wander to another village and buy some food but to feed this many people five thousand by the way was just the men that wasn't counting the women and children so it's probably like yeah. 10 11 thousand yeah. people there <clears throat> and and if we if we go buy food for them i mean it would cost a fortune absolute fortune we don't have that kind of money and so there was this <laughs> this moment where they had to look to Jesus to solve this dilemma. And of course he did. And he multiplied miraculously this, this food as kind of a a picture of what the Eucharist is for all of us. But, but regardless, then he says this really mysterious thing that drives a lot of people away. It's like, it was like anti-evangelistic. If he just wanted to win people over, he would have told them exactly what they wanted to hear. Like, come tomorrow, there'll be another banquet. And they would, have been like, they would have loved that. But instead, he's like, I am the bread of life. Like, this bread that I fed you just now, like, it's, it's going to be burn up in your digestive system in a few hours, and then you'll be hungry again. But he's like, I'm the bread that lives forever. And he, so he's pointing them f- from the earthly sign to something higher, to ultimately himself. Um, that was really the hunger that they were trying to fill. So... So it's just a really powerful passage, a challenging passage, because, you know, the the Jews were scandalized. They didn't understand, like, they didn't understand what he was saying. It sounded like he was almost like implying cannibalism or something like that. And it, it was shocking to them. And I think we've lost the shock. When I grew up a Protestant, anytime this passage was mentioned, which was very rarely, by the way, only if they were doing like a chapter by <laughs> chapter through the book of John, would they even touch this passage. But if they did, it was always like the very literal Protestants who were like every passage of scripture is perfectly literal, plain on its face, would suddenly get yeah. very metaphorical and symbolic. And they would say, oh, well, this Jesus didn't actually mean that. He was talking about reading the Bible. That's what he meant. You know, like the Bible is what he meant by eating his flesh and drinking his blood. What? Like <laughs> That makes no sense. Um, yeah. Because the Jews wouldn't have had a problem with that. Uh, like no, they wouldn't I... have had a problem reading the scriptures. I mean, that's what they did all the time anyway in synagogues. So um, at any rate, it's just a really challenging, shocking passage. And you have to take it at face value for it to mean anything. Otherwise, it's just absurd. 
Um, yeah. And, so. Yeah, no, and I appreciate that. And actually, that's exactly what Thomas Aquinas uh, argues, right, is that we can't see Christ in the Eucharist, body, blood, soul, and divinity, but we move with with faith, right, that he is. And we trust that what God said was true because Christ could not lie. He was God. He was truth, right? And so he could not lie. And I think that's a perfect thing to just, so they were disputing, they were confused, and they moved forward here in 54. And I'm using the Revised Standard of um, Edition uh, just for anybody who's who's curious or wanting to follow along. But in, in 54, uh, right there, he says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I mean, mic drop, he just, they were disputing, and he just starts out. And he says, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And isn't that what we want, men? We want to abide in Christ. We have to want to abide in Christ. And and I think that, uh, you know, that he's just telling it right like it is, is that can we abide in the spirit? Can we abide in the teachings of the church? By the way, the teachings of the church on this go all the way back to the beginning. And we have, you know, the writings of Ambrose and Irenaeus and Ignatius of Antioch that go all the way back to uh, the, um, the, the beginning of the third century or the uh, second century beginning of the second century and we just have um you know a plethora maybe we'll do another episode on that but um he continues with here at 58 this is the bread which came down from heaven not such as the fathers ate and died he who eats this bread will live forever and he said this in the synagogue as he taught at capernaum and and so we see frequently Christ is saying these things and he's bringing these up. And Sam already, you just, you already alluded to it that he actually lost people. And, and I think that's such a be- beautiful moment for us, right? Not, not that he lost people and not that it's caused such separations and such attacks uh, these days against Catholic. And I would say there is, there is very little more argued um, differences between Protestants and Catholicism than maybe, you know, the teachings on the Eucharist or, of course, like authority and stuff. But, but I do see this as one of the most, I think Peter Crave talks about it as being the most um, disputed and argumented um, uh, difference between Protestants and, and Catholics. But that being said... That continues on, and he said he didn't say, um, you know, Christ didn't say okay, to his 12 after a bunch of people left. Sorry. So a, a bunch of people left. They said that this was too hard. This teaching was too difficult, and they moved on. And what did Christ do when he turned to the 12 that remained? He, he didn't say, you know, to them, now that, now that we're down to 12, <laughs> I'll tell you what I really meant. Um, he just asked them if they were going to leave. And Simon Peter answered him. He said, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That doesn't mean that that Peter in this moment understood what Christ was meaning or what Christ was going to get at. But it did understand that he understood that the words coming out of Christ's mouth were truth and that he was God and that he needed to uh, abide in Christ and trust that even if he didn't understand these things, he was going to stick with it. So... Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think uh, there's like these, uh, a lot of the message of Jesus, which was very difficult for the Jews to accept, but but that the whole Jewish system, um, the Protestant understanding is it was just abolished. Like it was just, 
just all these rituals and stuff that meant nothing. And then, then Jesus just wiped all that away and it was just worthless. It was just kind of, the whole point was just to, to help us realize that we were sinners or something. I'm like, but that's way oversimplistic. What, what the actual Jewish system was, was a prefigurement that led to a fulfillment. So all those rituals were pointing to a fulfillment, not that a, they would be wiped out, but that they would reach um, their, their culmination in the new covenant. So, for example, all the Old Testament ritual sacrifices of animals and things like that were all pointing to the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. Likewise, like it's very important that he Jesus talks about the manna in the desert. He's hearkening back to the Jewish, the whole Jewish, they had a liturgical year, just like Catholics have a liturgical year. And the whole liturgical year was remembering mm. the, the, exi, the exodus from for first enslavement, then the exodus, and then the entering into the promised land. And so their whole yes. like cycle of feasts was focusing on that experience and keeping the memory of that alive. So Jesus is appealing to something that is very fresh in their mind because all of their feast days, all of their celebrations, all their liturgical year was centered around this, this experience that was foundational to their whole nation. So when he says, I am the bread of life, he's comparing it to the manna, yes, but he's also comparing himself to the Passover lamb. Because on Passover, they would kill a cute, adorable little lamb and they would sit with it for three days, just long <laughs> enough to get attached to it. And then they would they would kill it. It was, it was really like kind of a shocking thing. Um, but then on the Feast of the Passover, they would eat the lamb. Uh, they would actually That's like... Right. And they had the to lamb, eat it, right? And then they would eat it. Like there was yeah. no... There was no... Yeah, exactly. And so that's what Sorry, Jesus no, keep on going. Like, I'm just affirming. Yeah, and like he's appealing to this religious imagination of the Jews and saying, I am the lamb. Like, you're gonna eat like you need to eat me. And they're like, What? And 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 uh and of course then on the actual feast of the Passover, uh the institution of the Lord's Supper, he makes clear how that's going to happen. This is my body right here. You know, the chalice, this is my blood, like, take, eat, you know, and like, and this is the fulfillment. This is the sacrifice that all of those other sacrifices were pointing to. Um, and like, it, it's not that the, the old covenant was abolished. It was fulfilled in the new covenant. All those sacrifices continued in the pure sacrifice of the mass. And the sacrifice, the instant, you know, in the the Eucharist, which is a sacrifice in itself. So, um, so all that to say, like the shocking passage is really like drawing together this old world of Jewish exile, Exodus, entering into the Promised Land, the Passover Lamb, all of these things, and Jesus is saying, like that's a, that's all about me, <laughs> and then I'm going to be preparing something mm -hmm. that will continue uh, this sacrifice forever. Um, and I am, I'm the lamb you're going to eat me. So like that is, uh, yeah, a lot to wrap your mind around if you're a first century Jew. Um, and yeah, you know, obviously a lot no, of people, didn't I agree. And, and so. yeah. And just, just to add to that, this, 
idea that they had to eat the Passover lamb. And if they didn't eat the Passover lamb, the firstborn would die, right? I mean, that's what it harkens back to. And and so they had to eat it. They weren't allowed to make um, like a, a cookie-shaped lamb because they didn't really like the the taste of the lamb, right? Uh, they understood the the requirement that was, was upon them. And so this was, you know, incredibly challenging. And I think you did. I will, I'll just jump in. I know we've got a lot of scripture verses. I'm going to just jump in and talk about the Last Supper because the point of this episode is to help men identify those passages to pray about them to to grow in that understanding of what Christ states and to to be challenged so that we can become better men for Christ so that we can become better catholic men that are are striving for holiness and so the last supper uh, scripture verse that I chose was from Mark and that's verses 22 through 26 and in this he states And as they were eating, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Take, this is my body. And he took a cup and then, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they drank all of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I shall not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And there's been a lot of Thomas Aquinas and Augustine and, all, you know, Scott Hahn has that whole book now uh, that just really dives into a lot of the the wisdom and, and what's going on here. But one thing I do want to point out is something that St. Augustine talks about is that, yeah, Christ actually held his body in the first, uh, the Eucharist, that that is where it began, that his suffering and death began began here in in his separation of um of his body in in the very first eucharist uh that he held and he gave to uh the men in the upper room and so uh you know just just consider that but he and then finally just that that last point that that we hear is that he didn't say um you know do this in memory of me he didn't say he said he said take this is my body he took the cup and then he gave, you know, again, giving thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. And, um, and the priest in his ordination and throughout the centuries now has been able to bring Christ to us in the Eucharist. And we are just so blessed to be men that are Catholic that have this, um, again, this source and summit for us to, to turn to. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think, too, it goes back to where we, we often read back in, into Scripture our modern way of seeing things. But to, again, the ancient Jews, uh, the Passover feast that where Jesus instituted the Eucharist was a really making present of the Exodus. It wasn't just a memory the way we think of it today, like I remember what I ate for breakfast yesterday. Like to them, it was like a, you were actually participating in the Exodus. Like it was just the Jewish view of time was like that you could make present again through these prayers, through the ceremony, like through this meal, this very same spiritual event. You were making it present again. Um, and, and the Greek word for that is like anamnesis. Like it just it's a making present again. Mm-hmm. And so the, that's what the Jews meant um, by the Passover. And so just everything Jesus was doing was building off of that understanding of time that was very different than our modern understanding of time. So anyway, just a note there, when when he even when he uses the word, do this in remembrance of me, 
it's like do this making present again you know my my sacrifice so um but but all throughout the old testament too again there's this foreshadowing of the eucharist that's fulfilled in these new testament passages and to a first century jew like it would have made perfect sense but like we've we, we don't live in the in that atmosphere anymore and so we have to kind of place ourselves back there but but there's passages that like are very powerful and one is um there's this this mysterious figure in the Old Testament, uh, Melchizedek. Um, he shows up mm. with with Abraham in Genesis, uh, and he's a priest that offers bread and wine. That's what he offers, which was very strange in the old in the old ancient world. The only things that were ever sacrificed, pretty much in the old ancient world, was like living things, like like uh, animals. Uh, sadly, in some cultures, people. But regardless, like. Mm-hmm. Something had to shed blood. That was kind of their understanding in the Old Testament, in the old ancient world. But like Melchizedek offered bread and wine. He was a king of Salem, which was the king of peace. Uh, just a very mysterious figure. We don't know a lot about him, but he shows up again in the Psalms. When David says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Um, after the order of this priest who offered an offering of peace of bread and wine and then that that actually is repeated in the Catholic ordination ceremony, the Catholic ordination rite. They say to every priest who is ordained now, like, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So there's this beautiful connection that goes back thousands and thousands of years, all the way back to Abraham of, like, a priest who offers a, a bread and wine. Um, and, and there's a lot more that could be said there, but there's, there's a lot of foreshadowing that happens in the Old Testament. And just one other verse I really want to highlight. There's a lot more in the Old Testament. Um, but just one other one I want to highlight yeah. that I think is overlooked a lot. Um, but in the book of Malachi, uh, it says, is kind of this prophetic uh, book, uh, prophetic not in foretelling the future, but just in calling the Jews back to God. Um, there's this, in the very beginning of the book, it says, this is God speaking, my name will be great among the nations. Remember, he's speaking to Jews who thought that they were they were the chosen people forever. No other nations even mattered in God's scheme of things. So God's saying, no, I, my name will be great among all the nations, not just Israel. From where the sun rises to where it sets, globally. And every place, mm. incense and pure offerings will be brought to me. Because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. So what is this incense and pure offerings he's talking about? He's talking about a global sacrifice, a pure sacrifice that will be offered everywhere. And is that not true? Like, so again, we'd see like in the new new covenant was not about abolishing sacrifices. It was about fulfilling them with a new sacrifice that was different. Uh, it was the fulfillment of all of those pictures. So, at any rate, just some beautiful foreshadowing there in the Old Testament. Yeah, I'm really grateful that you brought in the Old Testament because it is. And when I was teaching uh, religious education uh, recently, I was going through the dark passages of Scripture. And we just can if if you don't have the fulfillment in Christ, 
if you don't, you can misunderstand God in every way, shape, or form. And I feel like when we have this fullness of Christ as brought forth in the teachings of the church, passed down through the generations in Holy Scripture for us, we can see these connections. We can learn from them. Christ knew these things. Why? Because God inspired Holy Scripture. God is truth. Christ, being the second person of the Holy Trinity, um, is truth. And he understood this, and so he was able to share this with us. And I'm, I'm so, so grateful because... We don't have enough time to go through 15 scripture passages in the New Testament uh, that refer to the Eucharist, which I'm sh- I'm sure there are. I don't have a count in front of me, um, but let alone the Old Testament. But but men, there is so much that can be um, uh, uh, that you can enter into to to better appreciate the Eucharist and better understand this from the level of the intellect and the level of love and the level of truth. And so I encourage you to do that. So the next thing that I want to go to is just the conversation about um, the early church in the book of Acts and uh, read to you just a couple things that that allude to the importance of this. And so the first one that I'm going to grab is from Acts, and that's the second chapter of Acts, and it's uh, starting in verse 42. And it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayer. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And I like to grab that one up just to talk about this importance of coming together in prayer, but also in the breaking of bread or in the Holy Eucharist, right? So groups that are coming together and they're not doing those things, we're not following the teachings of the apostles, right? And it says right at the beginning, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and fellowship. And when they got together in fellowship, when they got together in liturgy, what did they do? But they uh, um, entered into the breaking of the bread and the prayers. And so I think this is is so important that right at the beginning, Christ had, had just died and the apostles were still trying to figure this out. They were um, filled with the, the grace of the Holy Spirit and they were getting together on a regular basis to celebrate in Thanksgiving or the Eucharist together. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. You see, like in the very beginning there, this template um, for for worship centered around the breaking of bread. So Eucharist was right there in the beginning. Um, and a passage from the New Testament I'd like to highlight, too, is, is Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, the road to Emmaus. It's so fascinating mm. because they're talking to Jesus about the events in Jerusalem about Jesus and they didn't see him. They didn't recognize him. And uh-huh. it says that he hid them. He hid himself from their knowledge. So in fairness to them, he wasn't letting them recognize him. <laughs> but, um, but then they make their way to their house and they say, stay with us, you know, stay with us. And then over a um, breaking of bread, Jesus uh, reveals himself and through the scriptures. But then it's a, when he broke the bread they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. So it's very interesting that in, again, this meal where they break the bread, the minute he does that, they see him in that breaking of bread. And I think that's something that's often overlooked in this passage is there's strong Eucharistic implications in this, that Jesus is present in the bread, in the breaking of bread. And, 
um, it's it's another beautiful like this is how I'm going to be present to you in the future. This is how you're going to recognize me in the future. This is how my presence is going to be. And and immediately they left from there and were telling everybody about it. So there's, you know, go forth the masses ended kind of uh, implications there where it's like they see uh, Jesus and the breaking of bread and then they go out. And then they go tell everybody about their experience. And I think that's, again, just another template for, for our worship and in our Christian life, so... Yeah, no, absolutely. And I appreciate you um, sharing that. It's just, it's, it's constant and it's, it's full on. And it is something about not only the liturgy, but something that unifies us men uh, together along the same thread down throughout the generations from the 2000 years of church history and, um, and before, you know, when, when Christ was, was still alive and was teaching. And so for my final scripture verse that I wanted to look at, and this one is going to be because we are men who are striving for holiness. And that's basically, if you are in the state of mortal sin, you cannot receive Christ in the Eucharist. And it says so in scripture and you need to go to confession first. And the reason why hopefully you're not in the state of mortal sin, if you are, then definitely go to confession ASAP. That being said in first Corinthians, and I just do wonder how, um, Protestants, and maybe you can, uh, mention that to me, Sam, how they interpret this because for Catholics, it just makes so much sense, but that's in first Corinthians 11, 27 through 29. And it says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. And that last part eats or drinks judgment upon himself. You heap mortal sin upon yourself if you're in the state and you're not receiving uh, worthily, which is why the church makes such a big deal about, about this. And I'm not, um, there's, there's a heresy, um, you know, that, that you can never receive, or you should only receive once a year right after, you know, confession or something like that. I, I can't recall what that heresy was. And, and we're not pushing towards that, but we are pushing towards the understanding of, of we have to receive Christ worthily. And I'll be honest, I'm not in the state of mortal sin, but if my, it's happened at mass a couple of times when my kids are just driving me crazy and I am not in the state to, to receive Christ. And so I will, um, <clears throat> I will pause in that moment and I'll do a spiritual communion and, uh, and pray for peace and things like that. But, but the idea is, is that it's in, uh, in Paul's letter here where he talks about eating the bread or drinking the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. And if it was just a sim symbol, how could it be unworthy? And so that, that's something that's just worth talking about. And I know we didn't mean to make this uh, episode really, um, apologetic in nature, but it is something that I've, I've been curious about. Love to hear your thoughts, Sam. Yeah, I, I love it. He says not discerning the Lord's body, like another word for discerning might be perceiving without perceiving the Lord's body. Um, I think, you know, in the in the very early church, um, liturgy had not been uh, codified to the extent that it is today after 2000 years. And so what they what they talked about in the early church was there was kind of like this um, the, the Eucharist would follow an actual like meal, but people would blur the lines um, and they would 
just start gorging themselves on the Eucharist and getting, you know, drunk on the wine and things like just terrible things of the abuses wow. and things wow. that they were doing. Yeah. And, but, but what he's saying is like, this is not ordinary. There's not ordinary bread here. This is the, this is the body of the Lord. But also the beautiful thing about the Eucharist is it binds the actual body of Christ, which is, uh, the people, and, and, you know, the, the, the people that comprise the church, there's like this, this dual, dual body. There's the body here and the body that's receiving the body, you know, and binding together. And so, well, yeah. the reason we don't yeah. receive the Eucharist unworthily, one of the reasons is out of respect for our Lord, of course, but also because sin cuts us off from the other members of the body of Christ. It's like it's like a wound. Like we're all it's like we're all connected. You know, you could picture like a thread binding all of us together, which is the Eucharist. It's binding us all together in faith. Um, when you receive the body of Christ and I receive the body of Christ, even though we're thousands of miles apart, it's like we're still one in yeah. Christ because we've received the same body. But sin wounds that connection. It's like it severs us from that connection to other members of the body of Christ. And so while co confession is like absolutely about restoring our communion with God, it's also about restoring our communion with others. And it's like when you're profaning the Lord's body yeah. in a public way, this is why like a lot of bishops make a big deal about maybe some more should, but some bishops make a deal about politicians who support anti-Catholic teachings. Um, receiving communion publicly because it's like a public you're cut off from the body of christ through your public sin and then you're going to publicly unite yourself to the body of christ without repenting of that sin it doesn't make any sense it's like your your communion's no. been cut off so before you can receive the body you have to restore your communion with the body through confession um, and that's why the priest says like by the ministry of the church. It's like he's saying, saying like yeah. the church, the corporate body welcomes you back. Um, and, and so doing your restored community with Christ as well. So there's a very, there's, there's dual symbolism. You're not receiving the Lord's body and that you're not seeing your brothers and sisters in Christ. You're being cut off from them, but you're also not receiving the Lord's body in the Eucharist. And, and so there's, there's a, there's a lot of that I think that he's saying there that makes sense in a Catholic context, but doesn't make sense outside of a Catholic context. So, yeah, yeah, very, very true. So, well, any other scripture verses that you wanted to share with us, Sam? Well, the last one isn't specifically uh, Eucharistic per se. I think it is, but it's not about. Yeah, the bread and wine per se, or the body and blood of Christ. But in Revelation, it's interesting to note that there's mm. this lamb slain before the foundation of the world, like in, in the book of uh, Revelation or the Apocalypse, whatever you want to call it. There's this um, this image in heaven of this lamb that's perpetually slain before the foundation of the world, and I think there's this misunderstanding among Protestants. That we're sacrificing Jesus over and over and over again. And that's terrible because there was a once-for-all sacrifice. Scripture tells us there was a once-for-all sacrifice. Yes, absolutely. There was a once-for-all sacrifice. Uh, 
Um, and I think what it, it's important about it is the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary was just a manifesting in time of this kind of like eternal sacrifice of, of Christ that's really forever. He's always laying his life down for those he loves. Like he's always, you know, he's always self-emptying. He's always giving himself from the beginning of time um, and and has never ceased to do so. And the cross was just like him showing that to us in the most visceral possible way. Yeah. This love that God has for creation. Um, but the point being, the mass is just a is is just a making present again, in a different way, um, in an unbloody way. The same sacrifice of Calvary. So the sacrifice is one; it's always eternal, but it just comes down into time over and over and over again. Um, and that's it's not a re-sacrificing. It's a representing. It's a remaking present, which is what representing representing means. Is making present again this eternal sacrifice that's forever um, of Christ laying yeah. down, giving his body and blood, of sacrificing himself for his creation from the beginning of time, um, and so the Eucharist is a continuation of that sacrifice. It's a culmination and continuation of the old testament sacrifice the old covenant but now in a global universal way um the new covenant new that's that's eternal once for all so it's not a re-sacrificing of christ it's a making present again it's a representing christ sacrifice that's eternal and yeah even when all yeah, of the eternal. ceremonies have ceased um the lamb will still be slain so to speak yeah, no, very beautifully spoken, Sam. I very much appreciate that because it is, it's hard for us men to reflect on God existing outside of time and that this, you know, one sacrifice was eternal and it can cause division and separation for sure, unless we understand that and, and what's occurring, you know, and I do, I think about, uh, I can't remember which saints stated it and we're about to get into our saint quotes here, but I can't remember which saint stated it, but he talked about how, all the love that has ever existed in mankind is contained within one singular host. And, and just, I was inspired while you were talking about that, that, that beauty that, that, that we can reflect on is the fact that this is the same Christ. It's not Christ divided. This is the same unified Christ, God, who is love Christ, who is love shed forth for us. And it, it unites us. It unites us with Thomas Aquinas and St. Augustine and Irenaeus and, you know, and every saint that you love and, and adore and, and, uh, and it unites us all. And isn't that transcendent? Isn't that something worth understanding and worth growing in and worth taking serious in our lives, right? So many men go to mass and you see them sitting around and you can tell they don't want to be there. They're checked out. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> funny, quick story here. I had a, a close friend of mine <clears throat> make a joke afterwards. He's like, looks like you were falling asleep in mass, but it was because I was holding my son and my son was distracting me. And so I closed my eyes. <laughs> uh, so it might not be the case that, uh, that men don't want to be there. They might be like me in that moment where I was closing my eyes. So I can <laughs> try and focus on mass and not, um, 
and not him, but, uh, but it is, it, it's binding, it's unifying and it, it's just so, um, so beautiful for all of us. So anyways, man, we encourage you to take a look at all these scripture verses, to pray about them, to read one of them, uh, like moments before you go to mass again, to helpfully, hopefully help that experience of receiving Christ in the Eucharist, all the more edifying and all the more fruitful and unifying with, um, with Christ and his love. So I think it's time to go into our scriptures. I'm sorry, forgive me. We just talked about scriptures, our quotes. Uh, We need to go into the quotes uh, that we like to do when we're talking just the two of us. So Sam, do you have a a saint quote that you'd like to read first? I actually have two real quick. Um, Awesome. uh, First is, of course, from St. Maximilian Colby, but I love what he says. He said, if, Angels could be jealous of men for one reason. It would be the Holy Eucharist uh, or Holy Communion. Mm. I'm sorry. He said Holy Communion. Um, and I love that quote. Like you just, if angels could be, I don't mind. He's not saying they are, but he's saying if they could be, they'd be jealous of Holy Communion because it's such a profound mystery. But second, it's not actually a saint quote yet. Um, but uh, J.R.R. Tolkien um, has this incredible okay. letter that he's writing to his son, and he says, out of the darkness of my life, so much frustrated, I put before you the one great thing to love on earth, the blessed sacrament. There you will find romance, glory, honor, fidelity, and the true way of all your loves on earth. And more than that, death, by the divine paradox, that which ends life and demands the surrender of all, and yet by the taste or foretaste, of which alone can what you seek in your earthly relationships love, faithfulness, joy be maintained or take on that complexion of reality of eternal endurance, which every man's heart desires. So, um, as a way, and only a great author could put it, um, Amen. I totally agree. We'll put that in the show notes so that you guys can copy and paste it and put it on your, um, wall or something. No, yeah. So beautiful. And and as you just stated, so I'm very appreciative of those because I likewise, there's a book, uh, Jesus, my Eucharistic love, uh, that I have that has hundreds of saint quotes. Um, encourage men to pick up a copy of that, but, and it's hard to pick just one, right? You go to our Instagram feed and you just scroll through and you're going to see the Eucharist, you know, multiple times monthly, you know, uh, on there. So it's hard to pick just one. Uh, the one that I grabbed, uh, that was resonating with me and has been resonating with me is, uh, from St. John Vianney. And he stated, there is nothing so great as the Eucharist. If God had something more precious, he would have given it to us. And I love the, the, um, the depths of that, right? There's nothing so great as the Eucharist. And we know this because God loves us unconditionally and God loves us completely. And God, who is love, as I've stated frequently in this episode here, John Vianney mentions it. If there was something more precious, he would have given it to us, but there isn't. And so that's what we have in the Holy Eucharist, in the unblemished lamb and in the, you know, in the beauty there. And I also think that's great because it ties into something that Thomas Aquinas talked about where the Eucharist is the greatest in value sacrament, uh, that we have. And then you find that interesting, right? Cause we think of baptism and Thomas Aquinas is very, very clear that baptism is necessary for salvation. Um, and that it, uh, however, 
because it is water that's related to something, the sanctifying grace uh, that water relates to versus the Eucharist, which is the absolute body, blood, and soul and divinity of Christ, that the Eucharist is first in value because it's the food that nourishes us throughout our lives. And so anyways, there is nothing so great as the Eucharist. And um, thank you, St. John Vianney, Tolkien, and St. Maximilian Colby. Amen. Yeah. Uh, so receive the Eucharist uh, worthily, frequently. Um, it is a great mystery. Um, and uh, dive into the scriptures, too. If you're looking for just a quick compendium of scriptures, too, obviously the Catechism is a great resource, Catechism of the Catholic Church, but also uh, scripturecatholic.com. Um, they have a great page on the Eucharist that kind of pulls a bunch of scriptures together uh, to meditate on and to uh, really do some more study on to strengthen your faith in the Eucharist. And if your diocese is doing any um, activities or events for kind of this Eucharistic revival put on by the USCCB, engage in that to show your faith in the Eucharist publicly. I know in our diocese, we're doing a huge uh a Eucharistic procession between two major parishes in our city. Um, so if your diocese is doing things like that, you know, jump on board and su support it, strengthen your faith in the Eucharist, but also proclaim that faith publicly. So, but I, yeah, the church needs that. the strength of men and that's you. Okay. I love great. The reaction of people and to Eucharistic processions. I mean, you just get so many looks, people honking, <laughs> waving, you know, random people kneeling. Like it's just, People know something special is happening. So, Amen. Amen. Let's bring it to them. So awesome, Sam. Well, thank you so very much for your thoughts, uh, wisdom, and, and diving into scripture with me. I'm grateful for the time. And as we end each of our episodes. Be a man, be a saint. Thank you.